Good morning. Please turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Summing up a portion we've been considering for some time before we transition to another segment. Calling this particular summing up, Jesus expounding a true and vital righteousness. You could also call it a righteousness necessary to enter heaven, illustrated. What we have in that section is our Savior opening up accurately the Old Testament commands as relating to righteousness in the context of their misinterpretation by the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Jesus in that section is also presenting to us a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and it's the only righteousness that enables us to enter heaven. So it's an exposition, if you uh, like, of verse 20, uh, that what we have is really how that righteousness looks like that enables us to enter heaven uh, that exceeds the righteousness of the Pharisees. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Verse 21 to 48 is an illustration. is an opening up of God's commands regarding this righteousness. I'd like to read from verse 21 to the end of that section and then present some outline summing up expositions or illustrations. You have heard, verse 21, that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the, to the guard and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than the whole, than that your whole body 
go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I said to, to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, shall perform to the Lord what you've sown. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is foot, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I said you do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will grant the preaching of your word will be done faithfully, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that it will accomplish the purpose for which you will send it. We ask that you are God who forgives, who desires no less righteousness, but that of your Son has given us that righteousness, and therefore we commanded to live in that righteousness, a radical righteousness, a stringent righteousness, an impossible righteousness in our own strength, but with God we are commanded because he works in us to will and to do, and therefore we must work out our salvation for the pleasure of our God. Pray for any among us, our Father who, seem, who continues to trust the righteousness of the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, external works, legalism, Father, we do pray that they will look to your Son and that they will respond faithfully, they will turn away from sin and believe that he alone is able to impute, to give, to grant grace, to live that life of a saved people. So be pleased to save, even as we come to your holy word. Grant that our Father will come to it as the word of God. We will come to it reverently and expectantly. Bless, therefore, this activity of worship, we ask in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
righteousness necessary to enter heaven illustrated. Jesus expounding a true and vital righteousness. In opening up the scriptures on true biblical righteousness, in Matthew 5, verse 20 to 48, Jesus brings out what I will call critical over-observations in his expounding of the meaning of the Old Testament commandments that God originally intended. Opening up the scriptures on true biblical righteousness, in Matthew 5, verse 20 to 48, Jesus brings out critical overall observations in his expounding, in his opening up, in his exposition of the Old Testament commandments that God originally intended. Pharisees and the teachers of the law departed from that original intention and imposed on the scriptures a meaning that God had not intended and many a time robbed from the scriptures what God had intended. Many times as well overburdened God's children with what God did not intend them to carry. So that the Savior is able to say, you so overload them, but you're not even willing to lift a finger to help them carry the Lord. But you're so overloading them that even you yourselves are not able to carry that same Lord. You're so overloading them that actually makes it, humanly speaking, impossible for anyone to be saved because even the one that would be saved, you're turning away by your excesses of God's commands. So the Savior, therefore, opens up what's God's intention of this righteousness. And in that opening up, he illustrates the righteousness required of us. In this summary, therefore, those critical observations we do want again not to lose regarding Matthew 5, verse 20 to 48. In the first is basically this. It is the implied but unambiguous. It is a clear-cut claims to deity by Christ in his authoritative statements. You read Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 to 48, you do not miss this claim of deity by Christ in the statements that repeatedly are echoed in the passage, I say to you. And therefore, let us observe, firstly, they implied, but an ambiguous, clear-cut claims to deity. Christ is announcing he is God in his authoritative statements of but. I say to you in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, verse 22. He says something in verse 21. You've heard. And when Jesus says you've heard, they know who they heard it from by way of twisting the scriptures You've heard that it was said, and it's interesting 
that Jesus does not say, you've heard it written. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old. You shall not commit murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. This is what you have heard. But, here is what I will tell you. And in other words, forget what you've heard. Because what I tell you is binding, and what you've heard in the twisted sense is misplaced. But I say to you, everyone who is angry, you've heard that they have told you, oh, murder is only when you choke somebody to death. Uh, guess what? That may be partly true, but that's not the whole truth. Here is the whole truth, and I am telling you this. Verse 26. Truly I say to you, you never get out until you have paid the last penny. Truly I, please notice the eyes and they are emphatic. They are not simply laser fair, non-important statements. Verse 28. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with all in his heart. Verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 34. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those statements are intended, among many reasons, to demonstrate that Jesus is saying, I am speaking you with an authority that is not equal to that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. I am not speaking with that authority. Jesus is even saying this. I am not speaking to you as a prophet spoke to you. Here is how prophet spoke. Thus says the Lord. I am not Jeremiah. I am not Isaiah. I am not Ezekiel saying these things. God is. A prophet would never say, I in my own authority, I tell you. They would never do that. Jesus is saying, I'm not speaking as human prophets in that sense. I speak to you with a unique authority. In other words, I speak to you not with human authority. I speak to you with an authority that is above all human or creature authority. So that when you get to chapter 7, which we will do, they acknowledge this, that this authority is acknowledged. They realize this man is claiming something else than whatever or whoever anyone has claimed. 
except one. 28, 29 of Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds, not just a few people, not the Pharisees, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, not even so much with the detail and the content and the clarity of his teaching, but with how and with what authority. Verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. I say to you, is a claim to having a unique authority that was far above the authority of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. This is an acknowledgement at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that this is what Jesus is doing. Jesus is refuting the scribal understanding of the law with outstanding or astounding authority. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is what they told you. He is saying two things. One, they were partially right or they were wrong. And all I'm telling you is all that is absolutely right. So here is the whole truth. Nothing but the truth. So help me myself. Is Jesus' claim. And there is only one who can speak like that. The Old Testament prophets would only say, thus saith the Lord, when they spoke. The rabbis, knowing that they were not inspired, never spoke on their own authority, they normal, as I stated before, introduced a saying, either by repeating it from some previous rabbi, or by saying that there is a teaching that. In other words, they put in a disclaimer. You know, I am quoting somebody higher than myself. I'm quoting Shmei, I'm quoting Hillel, I'm quoting this guru. So if this statement is wrong, don't crucify me. Go to Vapiri. He said it. That's what they would say. But Jesus is saying, you want to hold anyone accountable for this statement? I am saying this. And I want to tell you this. This is true. These other guys were wrong. Nobody would stand up and say, I am wrong. Even faithful. I would like to say, beloved, today, that every faithful preacher, anytime you'd stand up to preach, to do evangelism, to counsel somebody, to encourage them, your authority must only be derived from the scriptures. You can use your culture, you can use your experience, but at the end of the day, what will be binding on that person for which you can hold them accountable is what God has said in his word. But here in the Sermon on the Mount, we encounter one who says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. The NIV, but I tell you that. Who is this one who speaks with such astounding authority? Who is this one? And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching them 
with the authority that rightly belongs to him as God. As God. Jesus is saying to them, I don't need to refer to anyone. I don't need derived authority. I have authority within me. I have inherent authority. It's right within me and that I can use. Anyone else must have derived. They can only say God says. That's all I'm qualified to do to say to you. God says. If it was up to me to say many things, the church would have been destroyed last year. only authority I have is to say to you, that's what the Bible says. And according to this passage, Jesus speaks with the authority of God Almighty. If your theology is not right, if your theology is not right on Christ, please do know that here is one of the arguments that proves that is God. It's the way he speaks and teaches. He speaks from his own authority. One of the ways Jesus implicitly claimed deity in was the way he taught the truth on his own authority. This was a claim of authority only equal to the authority of one who is God Almighty. The I is emphatic and a definitive declaration of the will of God. What we have in this section, therefore, is a presentation of Jesus Christ as the Messiah which really is Matthew's overriding purpose. You start the gospel, they ask, in what light is Matthew? What is the emphasis of Matthew's revelation of Christ? What about Mark, Luke, and John? They have all their emphasis. And Matthew wants to exhort Christ as the promised Messiah, God and very God. Please, as you read these explanations, this opening up of God's word by Christ, which is the Old Testament, please do know that it is God making himself, if we may say, clear again on a matter that he had made statements on, but humanity has confused it. So it's, he's come and said, look, you didn't hear me properly. Here is what I meant when I said, don't murder, don't do this, don't do... Here is the spirit of it. It's not simple an outward form it's an inner situation. It's a righteousness that begins from your very heart. There is a second observation as we sum up this portion in Jesus opening up. The righteousness that will enter or enable people to enter into heaven. And it's simply this. That Jesus is explicitly warning. If he's opening up the word. If he's explaining the word. If he's telling us this is what my father and I meant when we said, well, in this portion, he is warning against any twisting and perversion of the scriptures. He's saying in this section, don't ever misinterpret. Do your best. You will. Misinterpret sometimes we human. But if you do Please do it from a sincere motive and when you discover you're wrong, when I discover I'm wrong, we come to Christ and apologize. That sounds a little less, uh, less forceful. 
repent. That is more powerful. Jesus in this passage is saying, you're twisting the scriptures, who are you? How dare you adulterate what I have spoken? How dare you misrepresent me? How dare you miscommunicate the mind of the Holy Spirit? How dare you? Let us therefore secondly observe the explicit emphatic warning against twisting or bending the meaning of scripture to justify your wrong practice and my wrong practice even with good intentions. This passage is saying don't. Do not twist or bend the meaning of scripture to justify your wrong practice or my wrong practice even with good intentions. Jesus is saying don't. There's an American preacher recently, I think it's this year, who proudly said and has continued to say, you know, I have left my church because finally I saw the light that polygamy is not sinful. Uh, you, we need to ask, has he seen the light? Uh, he would say, God would say to such a one, how dare you misrepresent me? Remember, previous love indicated, do not take God's concessions for principles. The fact that God has tolerated some conduct for some time or in some period does not mean that's the ideal. So yes, David was a polygamist. It's not questionable. And he was used of God absolutely. The wisest of men, Solomon, was worse. But the fact that God did tolerate and allow these men to move in that direction does not mean it's the ideal. You just need to read Jesus and say, it was not so from the beginning. So to come and say, he has shown me the light. That this is right. Jesus in this passage is saying, don't. As we've stated before, Jesus was not contrasting his interpretation with Moses' teaching but with the interpretation of the scribes and the Pharisees. He was expounding the meaning of the text that God originally intended. He was doing Bible exposition, unlike the Pharisees and teachers of the law who had twisted the meaning of God's word to justify or suit their practices. Reverend Sinfukwe was doing a series on alcohol at Kansenshi Baptist Church. And after he finished, and he had questions from the youths, a whole bunch of questions. Reverend, you know, the Bible says, you know, it's drunkardness. The Bible says, and he made one interesting statement, and the statement was this. If you want to drink, drink. Don't blame the Bible for your drinking. Don't come to the Bible and say, it justifies. You know, actually the Bible says, if you want to drink, just drink. Now obviously you sense his sarcasm, as reverend sometimes is. 
That's what the Pharisees were doing. And we major in doing this. Sometimes it has to do with a dress code. Sometimes with our hairstyle. Sometimes with our mannerisms. The words we use. And basically because we can't find a text. Therefore we say. No, even the Bible does not forbid. Or does the Bible command it? Please do not twist or bend the scriptures. In other words, do your best to be clear on biblical instructions. In each of these cases, Jesus first related the popular twisted understanding of the Old Testament, the view advocated by the religious teachers of his day, and provided the accurate meaning and implied practice that we should follow. Here's what he's doing. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. You have heard that it is said that murder is only a physical act. That's what they tell you. Oh, but I would like to say to you, that's not absolutely, completely accurate. That's part of the truth. But here is what it is. That murder has to do with your attitude to your brother or your sister. With the names you call them, you fool. Pardon my language in today's language, you Nigerian language, you idiot. Now the text says, that's wrong. Don't justify it. But did you hurt them in the words you spoke? So, beloved, we'll read this section. We ask the question, who is innocent? Who is innocent? Sometimes we are so bent on those people that have actually done a physical act and we crucify them, not forgiven them. We've placed ourselves on some pedestal like with the righteous ones. Are you? The explanation of the Savior, are you? Are you sure you're not a murderer? Are you sure you tell the truth? Are you sure you don't retaliate? Don't twist the scriptures to justify your wrong. Jesus contrasted his correct interpretation with the first common understanding of the command. One major refutation of this passage is a twisted understanding of the law the Pharisees and teachers of the law had imposed on the purpose of the law. That one of the major murderous act the Pharisees and teachers of the law had done regarding to the law was to present it as a means of salvation. That's the worst they did. And the Apostle Paul, as a whole book, Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, who has bewitched you, this is not God's intention. He didn't give the law as a means for salvation. He gave the law as a standard to live by, by the saved. 
the Pharisees. The Pharisees. You notice as you read Acts 15, that's going to be the argument. Please, let's turn there so that there is testimony of Scripture. Their perversion. What are they saying regarding what the law is meant to do? Acts chapter 15, verse 5 to 11. And the apostles refuted that. Even though sometimes they themselves compromised, compromised like Peter. Acts 15, verse 5 to 11. This is an issue, there is a case before the Jerusalem Council, and the whole question is, how are people saved? And there are two positions, verse 5. But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, notice the language, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. This is a necessity and by implication for salvation. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders, just in case you're wondering, are you sure this is a salvation matter? Uh, let's read the text. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe, there is a conclusive statement, but we believe that we'll be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. They are not saved differently. Neither we. Because the Pharisees are going to argue these ones to prove they are. They must have demonstrated a commitment to the law of Moses. And the Apostle Peter is very deliberate. They believed. They had faith. This is the work of grace. Jesus is stating that the law is not a means to earn or gain salvation. Instead, it's a standard by which those who are saved live. The Sermon on the Mount is answering the question, how do disciples look like? The Sermon on the Mount is not saying this is how you get saved, though that's implied. But it's simply saying, you say you are saved, well, here is how you must look like. Here is how you obey the law. Here is how your righteousness must look like. It must not be like that of the Pharisees. Outwardly only, it must be both. Just in case you're hearing me say the outward look is not required. No, it's both. You must do look righteous from the outside because the inside is affecting the outside. Ferguson summarized the twisting of the law by the Pharisees this way, commenting on the Sermon on the Mount. Their concern was this. Take away the law as the means of earning merit, and no one will make any effort to keep it. The law will lose its teeth and no longer hold people. 
They will live as they please, as they follow, as the following duty suggests. Free from the law, oh blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. That would be the argument of the Pharisee. You said to them, saved by faith? Oh, you're creating a people that are rebellious and liberals and licentious in terms of practice. And Jesus is saying, you're absolutely wrong. The nature and the design of the law when rightly understood is meant and was always meant to be a standard of pursuing righteousness or holiness. It is the mark by which our righteousness is to be measured. In the Old Testament as well as in the New, God never commands the unsaved people to live a holy life. They can't. God's command to the unsaved is repent and be saved. It's only then he says, because you are holy like I am, pursue righteous lives. And in this passage, is warning us. Let us therefore heed the explicit emphatic warning against twisting and bending the meaning of scripture to justify our wrong practice, either by a wrong ethic or inventing a means of salvation the scriptures do not teach. You can never be inconsiderate as to give people false assurance that they are saved simply because you think they are. The only basis upon which you can assure people is the scripture basis. The scripture basis. Brethren, let us watch against selective obedience, like the Pharisees and teachers of the law, because selective obedience does not demonstrate a proper faith attitude to God. The attitude John and Jesus called for when they said, repent. Don't obey God selectively. You notice the grace of God. If salvation was based on works, none would be saved. None. All how grateful we must be that even as sinful as we are, even though we are saved, still gracious, and desires that will turn away and walk right. Thirdly, let us observe, thirdly, the comprehensive, all-wide-ranging, all-inclusive demand of biblical righteousness underlined in this section. Section Jesus is saying, I am God. In this section, Jesus is saying, don't you dare twist my word. But in this section, Jesus is also saying, righteousness permeates each and every aspect of your life. There is nothing excluded. Everything about your life must come under the spotlight of God's righteousness. Nothing is excluded. And all is given us here is a sample of what this righteousness looks like. It includes all areas of our lives. It includes our relationships. It includes social aspects of our lives. It includes our religious life. It includes our ethics, our work, 
politics, and all other parts of our lives. The Apostle Paul summarizes this beautifully in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whatever you do, whether you drink or eat, in everything you do, every single thing, do it for the glory of God. And that which glorifies God is your pursuit of righteousness. Beloved, please do not live a life that has what is called a false dichotomy, a false division. Now, this, this is secular. Uh, this is spiritual. If if you are therefore, it's secular. And we even quote the scriptures wrongly. This is for Caesar, so what I do here doesn't matter with God. If you are a Christian, everything, including your nail polish, amen? Amen. Amen. Everything. Everything. How long your trousers must be or short must glorify God. What mask you wear? Everything. Nothing is exempt. Nothing is exempt. So if on your mask there's something written, it's my life, it's my choice, that's dishonoring to God. That's wicked. It's not your life. It's his. If on your t-shirt, and some of these we know we get them from the expensive shop, but be careful, read what's there. Read, because when you wear it and you're going and all you're telling us, I don't care what you think. And of course you should care what we think. It's none of your business. Of course it is our business if you are a Christian. Mind your business. So we mind. That's why we mind you because you are our business. When you have these t-shirts that say, just do it. Be clear to know what it is. Just do what? Everything. Falls under the eye of God in your pursuit of righteousness. The laws of God as given to his children are to regulate the whole of their lives, morality, religious, social, and politics. Jesus is in this section explaining to his disciples when rightly understood that the place the law should have in the Christian's life is that which regulates all aspects of a disciple's life. John Newton, in one of his letters, wrote the following, ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. And at the bottom, not least, but it's the very reason everything else is messed up, is because we think the law is not affect, does not affect every aspect of our lives. We have in this section examples of what is called radical ethics or moral practices of righteousness. 
This is in contrast with the previously held ethical moral practices of the Jews or Pharisees and teachers of the law. We have a righteousness that is clear at variance with human ethics without God. You have no God. This is an impossibility. This is an impossibility. So I'd like to ask, beloved, are you sure you are saved? Are you sure you are saved? If this is the standard, do you measure up to this standard? Is this the righteousness you pursue? Are you sure you will enter heaven? Lastly, observe fourthly that these examples of righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law in this section of the Sermon on the Mount must mark every single disciple. This is a standard for every single disciple. This is not simply a standard if you are uh, Bachendela. This is not a standard for Dr. Manana. This is a standard for students as well. This is not just a standard for pastors. This is a standard for anyone that is saved. This is what you pursue. This is not simply a standard for praise team. This is a standard for hospitality ministry. This is not simply a standard for women, it's a standard for youths. It's not simply for men, it's for women as well. For every single one, you call yourself a disciple, there is your standard. So are you sure when you read this passage, you acknowledge Christ as God? You acknowledge that when he speaks, you must obey without question? Are you sure when you read this section, you are convinced that you are understanding and you are pursuing an application of God's word accurately and as faithful as you can? Are you sure that when you read this portion, you are able to say, well, this righteousness affects all aspects of my life? But maybe for some wrong reason you think you are exempt. When you read this, please do remember that this is about you and this is about me. If you are a Christian worth your sort, here is your standard. When you are playing golf or when you are watching football, when you are watching wrestling or you are watching Nigerian witchcraft movies, there is the standard. When you are on the minibus and you are in shop right, when your change is short and when it's above, there is your standard. So I ask again, beloved, are you sure you are a Christian? Are you sure you will enter heaven? The Savior is available to save. Not by the law, by grace, by your believing and repenting from your sins. Please be saved and live a righteous life for the glory of God. Amen.